from KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. I'm John Schott. At Religion for Life, we explore the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. The religious landscape is changing in the United States. While the vast majority of Americans still identify as Christian, that number is shrinking and shrinking fast. According to the Pew Forum, from 2007 to 2014, the Christian share of the population fell from 78.4% to 70.6%. The biggest losers were mainline Protestants. Those are the groups with the strange long names that are hard to spell, like Episcopalians and Presbyterians places where your grandparents went when they went to church. My tribe, the Presbyterian Church USA, is the biggest loser of all. Now, there are many sociological reasons for the decline of the main line, but I'm not going to bore you with all of that. What is interesting is the group that is growing. In this changing religious landscape, there is a group that is increasing in numbers. More and more people, especially young people, are getting on board this religious thrill ride. This group increased its share of the American pie from 16.1% in 2007 to 22.8% in 2014. That's a whopping 8.7% increase in just seven years. Well, who are these people? Who is attracting them? What is attracting them? And what's their religion? Well, they are known as the nuns. Not nuns with the habit, N-O-N-E-S, nuns with no organized religious habit. When asked about the religion, they check off the box that says none or unaffiliated. 22.8% nationwide are unaffiliated. For those under 30, that number is 34% over a third. What is the most religiously unaffiliated city in the United States? Home sweet home. Rip City, the city of roses, Portlandia, Portland, Oregon, is the nation's most religiously unaffiliated metro. According to a survey conducted by the Public Religion Research Institute, 42% of Portlanders go to the church of I'm staying home, thanks. Well, what does this mean? Well, I think it means a lot of things, depending on what you're looking for it to mean. For me, I think it means that people are becoming theological, spiritual, philosophical, whatever you call it, do-it-yourselfers. Fewer and fewer people are buying the product organized religion is selling. They've had enough of being bullied and badgered by bizarre beliefs that don't make sense. And some are just, frankly, bored. They are affirming their own ability to doubt to research for themselves, to make up their own minds, and to be selective about what is important. They're making their own choices about how to live their lives and how to make a meaningful contribution to this one shot we have called life. I think it's an exciting time of change. It's a time of experimentation, of trying new things, mixing things up. It's a time to find a community, developing a philosophy or spirituality or whatever word that fits that's of value, not just habit or what someone else said to do. All the symbols, holy books, relics, metaphysics, God, all of it is up for reevaluation. I think people are looking for places like that, that allow for that, that encourage that. We need places, whether traditionally religious or not, that can encourage us to make a difference on a planet that is literally burning. Some, like my guest today, started in a traditional church, found it too oppressive, left, and then yet found it again in a new way. Well, at least a version of it. 
I'm excited to welcome Rachel Held Evans. She is an award-winning writer, a popular blogger, and the author of Faith Unraveled and the New York Times best-selling A Year of Biblical Womanhood. She lives in Dayton, Tennessee, and she's with me via Skype to talk about her new book, Searching for Sunday, Loving, Leaving, and Finding the Church. Welcome, Rachel, to Religion for Life. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, how did you happen to write this marvelous book, Searching for Sunday? Oh, well, you know, it was really conversations with my readers that inspired a lot of the content of this book. I knew that front and center of their minds was, what am I supposed to do about church? Uh, I write about uh, doubt and questions and uh, my experience sort of struggling with my faith, um, here in the Bible Belt in a very conservative culture. And so a lot of my readers are in the same place where they too have asked some really uncomfortable questions, aren't sure of what they believe, have some doubts about what they're hearing in church and, and what they're told to believe. And so uh, it was really important to them to try and figure out what how church factors into all of this. And that was an important question for me that I hadn't completely settled, even as I was starting to write this book, which is part of what made it so scary to write. Um, so I wrote it thinking of them and thinking of my own experience and my own story. And I wanted to write about how church is important and still has a place in our lives, um, even if it's not perfect, uh, even if it can wound, even if it uh, can commit injustices that the church there's still hope there. So I tried to avoid going too sentimental on the one hand or too cynical on the other, which was a tough balance to strike. But I hope I struck it. But it was really conversations with my readers that inspired this particular book. Yeah, churches really have a hard time with uh, doubting questions, don't they? Yeah. And, and, those who, <laughs> and those who bring them up, it's just like, we all may have doubts, but they're just not appropriate to bring them up at this time. Right, unless you want your name on the prayer request list, which is always awkward. <laughs> <laughs> it is always awkward, yeah. So, uh, but but on the same, on the other hand, like you mentioned, so many people um, struggle with doubts from whatever they might be. And uh, do you, do you find the church opening up in any way um, in terms of of uh, being open to people who ask questions? Yeah, not as many as as should be open <laughs> to those folks. Uh -huh. um, I know. I mean, there were times when I was wrestling with some pretty big questions about faith uh, that I remember sitting in church surrounded by the people who knew me and loved me best in this world and thinking to myself, this is the loneliest hour of my week because mm. I felt so different, so other, so lonely in my questions and uh, doubts. Uh, and I was afraid to bring them up because, you know, the people don't always respond so well to that. And a lot of time the impulse and, and even among people of goodwill, and I think that this is people trying to love people though imperfectly is to try and fix it, to try and make the doubts go away, give you a box full of apologetics books and hopes that that, and hopes that that will fix it and clear away all of your doubts, get you back in line with where you once were. So I think there is in, in many churches this impulse to surround somebody who's got questions or who uh, maybe sees things a little bit differently, artists too, or just anybody who doesn't quite fit, to try and make them fit, to try and, and make them conform and to fix them and uh, 
get them back on the straight and narrow. And that tends to actually backfire a little bit because in that moment, the last thing I know I wanted was somebody kind of dismissing my questions as silly or easily explained or easily answered. Um, What I really wanted was for people to just simply understand and to be present with me and uh, to walk down that road with me. So I think churches that are willing to do that churches that are willing to uh, just be present with those who maybe don't fit uh, or who have doubts. Uh, I think that those churches long-term have the healthiest environments uh, for everyone because most people at some point in their life go through suffering, go through doubt, go through questioning, experience sin, or the results of someone else's sins. And we have to have churches where that sort of thing is talked about and not kept at arm's length, but experienced together in community. And you write about uh, in your book uh, about your, your own story of, of struggling with church and, and, and leaving church for a time. And, and people have left because their, their personal growth uh, has moved beyond the established beliefs, but yet you keep searching uh, for Sunday, the title of your book. So how is church worth the struggle with all of that? Yeah. It, you know, I think that no matter what, there is an important role for community and real life community, not just um, sort of internet community, which is good. I mm-hmm. love the internet. I do a lot of my writing on the internet, but I think this generation in particular does need reminding now and then that those flesh and blood relationships where you share meals together, where you uh, tell one another the truth and experience life together those are really important relationships and that kind of community is really important to be a part of. And the church offers that to us. It offers us a community of people um, who can gather together, remember Jesus and look for Jesus in one another and in the least of these and in communion and the bread and wine that we share together. And that's, that's always powerful and always important, but that's not to say that I'm not the type to say that everybody has to go on a Sunday morning to a building with a steeple on top. Uh, you know, I think church can manifest itself in a lot of different ways and in a lot of different communities. So especially for people who have been deeply hurt, deeply wounded by the church, I'm not the type to push them through the church doors and say they have to be a part of um, a Sunday morning service every Sunday. I think each of us has kind of a different path, but I do think there's value in community and there's hope in community. And so there's hope in the church. You know, there is a real touching part in your book, um, a real honest part. Oh, there, it's all honest, but this one uh, kind of stuck out to me. It was when you left uh, the one church and you, and you and your husband went and talked to the minister. You're kind of, you know, outgoing exit interview, I guess. And, and you, when you got home, you cried and you said, well, who's going to bring us a casserole? You know, when we when if we have a baby and I, and I thought, yeah, that's that you really touched on. You felt selfish about saying that in the book you wrote. But really, that's that's the real human part of it, though, isn't it? Yeah. And it's like, where else do you really find that kind of community? It's it's tough. And where else do you find a community that offers those casseroles and, and, and say and says this is holy. This is, you know, this is the work of Christ, this caring for one another, this feeding one another. That is really valuable. And so even though I had to leave, that was the church I was kind of raised in, went to, went to when I was in high school and college. 
Um, and it was tough to leave, but I felt like I had to. There's so many things that, you know, women were forbidden from doing a lot of things in that church. And, and I opposed some of what was being said about my gay and lesbian brothers and sisters. So it's, it was the right thing to leave, but I was also very much aware of the fact that that community had blessed me in incredible ways and that it would continue to be a community that blesses people and that does really good work. So it was important for me in the telling of my story and in the telling of other people's stories too, to show that no church, very few churches fit nice and neatly into that category of good or evil, uh, that most involve a bunch of imperfect, broken, sinful people doing extraordinarily loving things things for one another and offering one another grace. And so I wanted to honor that church that I grew up in as best I could. And one of the best things that church did for me was teach me hospitality and the importance of hospitality. So it was, it was a a loss to leave that church, even though I think for us, it was the right thing to do. If you are just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Rachel Held Evans. She's the author of Searching for Sunday, Loving, Leaving, and finding the church. And, and talking about uh, looking back at your church and recognizing of the experiences that didn't fit anymore and you couldn't be there, and yet also drawing in the, the, the parts that were important. I mean, that's really a, a, a sign, of course, of, of, of emotional and maturity and, and growth and everything to be able to take, you know, what we had from the past and integrate it into our lives and create something new. And, and I'm thinking, what would... If, if you could design a faith community, uh, what would you include? Oh, <laughs> well, see, I've tried that before. I was, <laughs> for a short time, my husband and I were part you, of a church uh-huh. plant, yeah, that, that basically failed. So <laughs> I will say that, you know, maybe the church coming out of my brain is not the ideal church, or maybe I would be <laughs> the only one at it. I don't know. I, nobody seems to really dig my idea of, like, liturgy meets meets bluegrass, which is kind of like my ideal <laughs> combination. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, hey, I think it's a good idea. We had a liturgical <laughs> string band at my church. I remember. Oh, see, I'm digging that. <laughs> uh, but I think that actually goes to show that like church isn't really about finding your ideal. Like uh-huh. the ideal doesn't exist. If you are waiting around for the right church, you'll be waiting around forever. It's about sort of like, my friend Ed puts it like this, picking a church is just picking which hot mess you want to be a part of, which I think just about says Mm. it. Uh, So, you know, my ideals are less important than sort of um, just finding a community uh, that practices the sacraments of feeding one another and surrounding one another uh, when we're suffering or struggling and confessing sins and baptizing sinners. I think any church that practices those sacraments, that preaches the word and baptizes sinners, is a, a church and a, a healthy church. So, you know, but for me, we eventually found our way to an Episcopal congregation, which for us is a great fit right now. Uh, but that was after a few years of not going anywhere and uh, kind of recovering from past experiences and um, trying to figure out what was next. And that was a good time too, the time in between. Um, So yeah, I I don't know that it's so much about, I mean, I've got my ideas of what makes a great church, but uh, I have to kind of set those aside when I walk through the church door and just love the people who are there. You you, you mentioned sinners a couple of times. What, uh, how has your understanding of sin and sinner changed? 
Hmm. Yeah. And it's really funny too, because what I've heard from the more sort of progressive liberal churches about this book is, wow, you talk a lot about sin. <laughs> and then what I've heard from the conservative folks is, you know, you really don't talk enough about sin. Oh, so, that's funny. <laughs> you know, that's, I think they're frustrated. I spent so much time talking about my own sin and not everybody else's. Um, but yeah, I mean, I still, I still think that, that, addressing and acknowledging sin is a really important role and function of the church. Uh, it's really easy for me to be horrified by the evil that I see out there without acknowledging the fact that the evil I see out there also exists in here, in my heart, uh, and that the pride, the prejudice, the hate, the cynicism, the fear uh, that is the cause of so many injustices around the world can also manifest itself in my own life. And I think it's beautiful that the church gives us a place to be honest about that reality and to confess our sins to one another, um, both as a group, like corporately and also individually with one another talking about our struggles. Uh, so for me, not that much has changed uh, in my view of sin, which I heard a lot about in my evangelical upbringing. I still think talking about sin is important, but I feel like now I have a little bit more of a healthy sense that uh, each one of us are both sinner and saint, and that mm -hmm. as broken as we are, the most important identity that we have is as beloved children of God. And that's not a status that you earn. It's not a status that you have to work for or a status that you can lose. Uh, you have always been beloved by God and will always be beloved by God. And that that identity supersedes any other identity that the world might try to give us, including sinner. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of how it has evolved. But I still think that talking about sin is a really important part of what it means to be a, a church. Yeah, we're, we we are all we're all broken in a way. I, I remember I grew up also in a Southern Baptist uh, church, and and, um, and and the idea, and not that they're all like this, but I got kept getting the message that if you're in, you're okay, and if you're outside, you're a sinner, or you used to be a sinner, and now you're not. And so I think um, my my kind of thing has changed over that. And as you mentioned it, we're all we're all a mix of of all of it. Yeah, yeah sinner absolutely. and saint together. Yeah, and one thing I write about in the book is how I think that healthy churches look more like AA than mm. country clubs, uh, and that there a lot of people I've spoken with who have been through recovery will say that they've never quite found a church that's uh, as meaningful to them as their recovery group, because in their recovery group, they all kind of started at this same place of struggle, uh, and that we share we bond more deeply over that sort of shared brokenness, that shared suffering and struggle than we do over shared beliefs, uh, which I think is really true. And that's sort of the equal, the great equalizer is that we are all, we've all experienced suffering. We've all experienced sin and you don't get into an escape pod from that when you join the church or when you become a Christian, uh, it's still a part of our, lives. And so yeah, a lot of churches kind of try to sweep that under the rug and let's not talk about that stuff in polite company. But I think, hey, if we can't talk about this stuff in church, where can we talk about it? Uh, so yeah, that's, uh, there's a few churches I know of that have done a great job of sort of incorporating the, like the 12 steps of AA, 
or, you know, recovery type language and, and postures into their faith communities. And it's been really cool to see how that's turned out for them and how it's brought a really interesting group of people together. Do you think, uh, you mentioned the word beliefs, do you think the church in, in many ways is, is moving beyond belief or moving away from beliefs and, and it's the belief stuff that's really been um, the, the problem for many people? Yeah, well, it was a huge problem for me. I think I, I, for so many years, I sort of thought of my faith as just a set of propositions uh, to which I made intellectual assent. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what it meant to be a Christian was to agree on a bunch of things and to believe a bunch of things. Um, and that can make for a very sort of anemic faith. Uh, and that's one reason why the sacraments have been so powerful and important to me in this this part of my faith journey and experience is because the sacraments have this way of getting God out of my head and into my hands, you know, in communion and baptism and things you can taste and touch and feel and smell. Uh, And I think there's a real longing for more experience with God, not more information about God. I mean, we are inundated with information in our culture. I think what people perhaps long for the most is, that experience. And it's hard to get that experience without the community of the church. So yeah, that's been my experience. And I know it's been a lot of people's experiences. And that's not to say that beliefs are bad or there's no place for beliefs. I stand there and affirm the Nicene Creed every Sunday, even when I'm very certain the lady saying it next to me believes it more than I do. But, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But I think it's not enough at least it wasn't enough for me to just simply believe to check off this list of doctrines that I agreed to. Uh, what I really longed for was an experience with God and, and to know God in some different ways and in some mysterious ways that can't necessarily be explained. I don't really know what happens at the table at communion on Sunday mornings, but I know that I experience Christ in a way there that surpasses um, what I can put down into words and for somebody who can so easily drift into an attitude of intellectualism, I think that that's been really healthy and really good for me. Well, you talk about the sacraments. It's been a big part. I mean, of course, your book itself, uh, Rachel, Hel- Rachel Held Evans, my guest, her book is Searching for Sunday, Loving, Leaving, and Finding the Church. And your book, your life story, is based around these uh, seven sacraments. Um, how, how did that come to you, to use the sacraments as a kind of a uh, outline for your own story? Yeah, it was really important to finally arrive at that idea for arranging this book because it was just too much to try and take on without the specifics and the the tangible tactile imagery around the sacraments. So, I mean, I can I had the challenge of, oh, I could write about the role of the church in American culture. Well, that seems kind of huge, but maybe I can't write about that, but maybe I can write about the role of communion in a church. And I don't know exactly how to tell my story of being raised evangelical and what that means, but I can tell what my baptism meant to me. Mm-hmm. So it was just the sacraments, you know, gave me a way to tell my church story and to talk about church uh, with some specificity instead of just getting all sort of esoteric. So that's what I was so grateful for, for the, the imagery around that. And I'm not really making a theological or ecclesiological statement when I chose the seven that I chose, which are the seven sacraments recognized by the 
Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. But I, in, even in communities that would not necessarily use the word sacrament or that are not highly liturgical or sacramental, you see in churches of all shapes and sizes and forms people sharing meals together. You see them baptizing sinners. You see them telling one another the truth and surrounding one another when they suffer, which is really the essence of anointing the sick. So even where these activities are not named sacraments, you see them in just about every healthy, spirit-filled church. So it seemed to me like the best way to tell the story was to use the imagery around those seven sacraments. Yeah, you mentioned, this is kind of a silly question, but you mentioned that uh, when you and your husband were looking for a church, you ruled out Southern Baptists because they were too conservative and Unitarians is too liberal. Is there really a Unitarian option in Dayton? <laughs> no, but there is in Chattanooga. So it would have, we, 45 minutes away, a mere 45 minutes away, and we could have done that. But yeah, there were okay. not a whole lot of options right here in, in Dayton. You got a couple of Southern Baptist churches, a couple of Methodist churches, couple of Church of Gods. That's about it. <laughs> well, and what you ended up being uh, is uh, an Episcopalian. Yeah, uh, well, that's what I'm trying. <laughs> I don't know how good of an Episcopalian I am, but uh, we're well, digging what, it right now. Well, again, tell me what, what drew you there. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, it was really, it was the table. And I know so many people have mm. sort of been moved and, and drawn to the Episcopal Church and the Anglican tradition for this reason, and I'm the same. It was, I deeply appreciated how at the very center of worship was this table where Jesus feeds us. And that was different for me, having kind of grown up in a church where the pastor was very much at the center of worship and the sermon was sort of the climax. I kind of liked this change of pace where the table was at the center. And the table represents so much to me about what I love about Christianity. And it gives me the space to not have that all figured out. I'm just there with my hands cupped together, ready to receive Christ. Um, that's important for me. It's very basic. And I, and I also really appreciated sort of the liturgy as a writer, of course, mm -hmm. I'm just really drawn to the beautiful prayers of the Book of Common Prayer. But also just I never felt like anybody was trying to sell me anything in this church. It wasn't like there wasn't a light show and, you know, nobody was trying to kind of make Jesus cool. It was just they uh -huh. came, they worshiped, you know, they ate together at the table. And I liked that very kind of stripped down um actually more traditional worship style. But again, that could just be me sort of, I think a lot of people in their young adulthood look for a tradition that complements or answers some questions that they're, the tradition they were raised in uh, didn't. So it's not so much that, oh, I think this is the style everybody has to love and appreciate. But for me, it was a good complement to the style and uh, tradition in which I was raised. We just have a couple of minutes left, but um, you are, of course, a blogger, uh, and sometimes uh, you get some heat uh, for your views. How, how is that going no. for you, being a little controversial? <laughs> oh, it's just life, and it's because uh -huh. I'm not always quite as restrained uh, on Twitter as I can be in writing my books. So, yeah, it's like I think anytime you are opinionated and you express yourself on the, a blog or on social media, you can expect pushback and that's just life. And I, I enjoyed the conversation and I kind of enjoy the back and forth. And for the most part, people are respectful 
every now and then sometimes come somebody comes around and they're not so nice every now and then I say something that's not so nice but uh but it's great it's great to have that instant connection with your readers uh and I think it's made me a better writer well, I'm glad you do it, and, and not only for me, but on behalf of uh, all the people out there who've struggled with many of the same things you do, uh, of doubt and uh, and a church that just sometimes puts the ceiling too low, um, you, you've opened up a great conversation. So thank you uh, for your book, Searching for Sunday, Loving, Leaving, and Finding the Church. Rachel Held Evans, my guest on Religion for Life. Thank you, Rachel, for being with me. Oh, it was such a pleasure. You've been listening to Religion for Life. At the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life, I'm John Shuck. For more information about the program, including links to podcasts, go to religionforlife.com. That's religionforlife.com. Like Religion for Life on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and download podcasts from iTunes. Religion for Life is heard on KZUM, Lincoln, Nebraska, and WEHC, Emory, Virginia. Religion for Life is produced and distributed with assistance from WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee, and KBOO, Portland. Be well.